right. So uh, welcome back, everyone, to the book of Genesis. Um, if you have been with us for a while, we have, we, our last study in Genesis was November of last year. We took a break for Advent, and then we took a break for some kind of vision-related uh, material, and then we studied through Colossians, and then we studied through the Lord's Prayer, and now it's time to get back to Genesis. Uh, if you have a Bible, open up to chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab the Pew Bible in front of you. We'll be on page 9 in that Bible. And as always, if you have any questions as we go through the text this morning, you can uh, go to slido.com and type in RevCDA in the box and uh, input some questions, and we'll take a look at them at the end. Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord God, you are good to us. You are great and kind, compassionate, generous. Um, when, we, when we get into the Old Testament, it, it's disorienting. It throws us off and... Um, I just pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you would help us to enter into the world uh, that we're reading about, to see you uh, the way you truly are, your unchanging character. Uh, the, the Savior we read about in the New Testament is the same Savior that we read about in the Old. And I just pray that we would have eyes to see spiritual things this morning, ears to hear what you have to say to us as we are uh, encouraged and challenged uh, by this text, I pray that you would um, fill our hearts with faith and love and hope. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, since we're jumping back into this, uh, we're going to do a little bit of a recap. Um, hopefully it won't take too long, but 11 chapters is a lot. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are the foundation of the whole of Scripture. And consequently, they're the foundation of the whole Christian worldview. If you are a follower of Christ, Genesis is really important for everything that comes after it. And so we need to know what's going on because not only does the first part of Genesis affect the New Testament, um, the, the, the life of Jesus, the apostles, all of those things, it's also going to affect the rest of the story of Genesis itself and everything after that. So we start in this book and we, we see that God creates the world. God is the ultimate cause of everything. We don't, this comes up a lot in the scriptures when, when we see people who have these territorial gods, these deities that they worship over, over cities or over areas, and God, Yahweh is his name in the Old Testament. He says, no, no, I'm not like that. I'm over everything. I am the creator and the sustainer of all of life. And he makes the world and he makes it good, the Word of God says. It was, it was ordered. It was functioning. Everything had a role to play, and it was working the way it was supposed to. God created human beings, and these creatures are special because they are made in His image, the text said, that they are like Him in specific ways that the rest of creation is not, and they're given a job. They're given a, a role to rule over the world on His behalf as kings and queens underneath His rule. 
They're tasked with being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and ruling and reigning and subduing as representatives of Yahweh. And he puts them in this garden, this, this place that um, is, is like a temple. It's where heaven and earth overlap. And they have act, direct access to God there. And they live in harmony with one another and with him and with the rest of the world. They have access to God's life. And they're meant to learn and grow in wisdom from God as they expand the reach of the garden out into the whole earth and fulfill the mandate they've been given. But this is when the first problem comes, right? The serpent, God's enemy, who we later find out is who we would call Satan or the devil. He lies to Eve and he convinces her that God's plan for her is not good, that she would be better off taking this wisdom that she's not allowed to take for herself, that God is keeping something from her, that her life would be better if she took things into her own hands. And so she and Adam, they disobey the command of God and they hide from him in their shame and their guilt. Instead of confessing their sin, they cast blame on each other. It fractures their relationship with God and then between them and, and then even the whole of creation is broken because of this. God banishes them from the garden so that they don't live forever in this state of brokenness. And then we quickly see the effects of this sin that is unleashed onto the world in the lives of their children. Cain and Abel. Cain murders his brother and, and fathers a line of people who over seven generations increase in their wickedness and rebellion against God. And this brings us to problem two, when a group of spiritual beings who are um, meant to live in the heavenlies, they leave their proper place, they rebel against God, and they try to unite heaven and earth themselves by fathering children with human women. And if you were there for that week, that was a weird one. This goes badly. And it creates more wickedness and perversion in the world. And it gets so bad that God decides to pick one man who is undefiled by this wickedness and save his family through a flood that wipes out the rest of humanity. But unfortunately, we find after the flood that Noah and his family are really no better than the rest of the humans. They spread throughout the world and they continue to fail to live up to the calling that God gave to Adam and Eve to be his representative rulers over the earth. And then that brings us to problem three. These people who are still wicked and in rebellion against God, they, they get together. They, cre they create a culture built on this rebellion and they start the first great empire and they build a tower that's intended to stand in the face of God to make a name for themselves and God puts an end to this rebellion by confusing their languages and scattering them throughout the world. So over the first 11 chapters of Genesis, what we call prehistory, over and over and over and over again, we see God pursuing humanity in the hopes that we would rule the world on God's behalf in justice and peace. And over and over again, humanity fails. And so when we start Genesis 12, and we're going to pick up, we're going to back up a couple verses in the back half of 11. But when we start Genesis 12, God is going to continue his plan to put the world back the way it was meant to be through another person. So Genesis 11, starting in verse 27, we read, these are the family records of Terah. 
Terah fathered Abraham, or Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in his native land in Ur of the Chaldees during his father Terah's lifetime. Abram and Nahor took wives. Abraham's wife was named Sarai, and Nahor's wife was named Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran and the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was unable to conceive. She did not have a child. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, Haran's son, and his daughter-in-law Sarai and his son Abram's wife, and they set out, set out together from Ur of the Chaldees to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. So we read here, the very first thing we read, these are the family records. This is, if you remember from our past studies, this is the word toledot. And it's, it's a Hebrew word that happens 10 times in Genesis, and you see it over and over and over again when the author is starting a new part of the story. He said, these are the records, or these are the genealogies, or this is the story of. And we see it, this is the story of the heavens and the, of the earth. This is the story of Adam. This is the story of Noah. And these are, these are just distinct units in the text. And this is another one. We're going to talk about Terah's family. And while it's difficult to say with any certainty when exactly the first 11 chapters of Genesis take place, we call it prehistory because we're not really sure, once we get to chapter 12, things start to get a little more clear. Once we get into the story of Abraham, the story of the patriarchs, we're going to learn about Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph over the next several months. We can start to use the tools of archaeology to help us figure out when stuff is happening. The narrative of the story gets more fleshed out. Critical scholars used to believe that the story of Abram's family was just made up, that it was the, the Jewish people hundreds of years later just telling stories around the campfire about their ancestors. But in the last about 100 years, archaeologists have shown that it is really unlikely that someone later on created these stories because of all of the cultural markers that they contain. And I'll try to point that out over the course of the several months that we're in this section. But here's an example. If, imagine you are an author uh, and maybe you, maybe you live in, I don't know, the 1600s. You live in Europe and you've heard of this place called uh, Asia. But you've never been there. You've never seen pictures. You've never talked to anybody that's been there. You've never heard anything about Asia other than you know it's a place. And you're going to write a book about a community in Asia. And you're talking about these people in Asia having breakfast. Now, based on who you are as a European, the way it would make sense for you to tell that story is to say when, when the Asian people, they, they get up and they have breakfast and they have oatmeal, and, and orange juice, because that's what you know breakfast to be like. But the reality is they don't. They have rice and they eat it with chopsticks. But you don't know anything about Asia, so you have no way of saying anything about that kind of culture. If the Israelites we're making up stories about the ancient past. They didn't have access to the culture of that past, and so it would make sense for them to put their own culture into the story. 
But that's not what we find in the book of Genesis. In the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we see cultural markers, rituals and sayings and ways of doing things and naming conventions that put that culture squarely in the ancient past before the people of Israel had come to be after the Exodus. And these people wouldn't have had the knowledge of that. And so scholars, because they see this in the text, know that the people that wrote down Genesis, Moses wrote down Genesis based on what he knew to be true about these people in the past. Because the stories that are told accurately reflect that ancient culture. And I think that's really fascinating, and it's, it's really helpful as we go through this to recognize that as much as like the flood and the Tower of Babel are this kind of fuzzy thing in the past that we can't really be sure about the timeline on, once we get to the story of Abraham, we have a pretty good sense that this was a real family that really existed in these places, and they went to these places, and they traveled, and they did these things. So I want to show you a map. Here's, it's a very tiny map, uh, but if you, if we go up here, this is, this is the Mediterranean, this is Ur, uh, way up there is Haran, and then this is what would be the land of Canaan. And so, it's likely that, that there's a couple different places that Ur could be. Ur's either down there, or there's also an Ur that's not on the map that's farther north, and nobody is quite sure which Ur Abraham came from. But if he came from that Ur on the bottom in, in kind of the pre-Babylonian empire, he would have taken the path of one of those rivers up north and taken a detour into Haran and lived there for a while, like the text says, and then traveled south down to Israel. It's a big journey. It's a long journey, especially by foot. These verses in chapter 11, they set the stage for the characters that are going to feature throughout the next part of the story. In these sections, we read that Abram is married to Sarai. And we read several times that Sarai cannot have children. And this is a big deal. This is the first time in the book of Genesis that we meet someone who cannot have children. For chapter after chapter after chapter, we've seen story after story after story of the humans doing what they were commanded to do, be fruitful and multiply. And they were fruitful and they multiplied. And there's a genealogy of this person and they had that son and that person had that son and that son had that son. And over and over and over again, we see humanity having children. And then all of a sudden in chapter 11, we hear, and Sarai can't have children. This couple cannot fulfill the calling that God had given Adam and Eve. That's going to feature in pretty prominently later on. And then we read about Lot. We read that Lot's dad died early, and it it looks like he's adopted by his grandfather and his uncle, Abram. It would be logical, if you're reading this for the first time, to think, well, Lot is probably Abram's heir. Lot is going to inherit the family fortune one day. But we're going to see coming up in the next chapters that that's not going to happen. And we read this story about Abram and Terah and, and uh, 
Ur of the Chaldees, right after the Tower of Babel story. And we're meant to understand, I think, that these people have come out of the culture that was built at Babel. We read something like this in Joshua 24, verse 2, which says, Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshiped other gods. So Terah's family and presumably his kids live in Ur, the kind of epicenter of this empire that's in rebellion to God. They're not even worshiping Yahweh. The, um, the god of, of, of Ur was the moon god. So maybe they worship the moon god. We don't know exactly. But they're not special people. They're not, they're not great people. They're not distinctive people. If we remember the, Nora, the, the, the Noah story, Noah was blameless in his generation. He like sh- stuck out for some reason to God and, and God chose him to build the ark. But, but Tara's family's just your average everyday idol-worshiping pagans. So then we get to chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, the first thing that I think we should notice here is the literary context of this section of verses. These verses, they're going to look backwards into Genesis, and they're going to look forwards into Genesis. They look, they look backwards because God promises Abram four things that should remind us of what we have already read about in Genesis. First of all, he says, you're going to have, uh, you're going to have land. I'm going to send you to a land. And if we've been reading Genesis thoughtfully, the word land comes up quite a bit in the middle section of the first part, when we start talking about the flood. The land is a big deal. Uh, Many many of your Bibles might say earth. It's the same word, land. But God has just taken the land and he's destroyed the land. He's completely remade the land. The land is, is iffy, right? Like you can't, you're not really sure about the land, but God says, no, I'm gonna give you some land. This land that I, that I destroyed, that I, that I flooded, that I judged, I'm going to give some of it to you. You're going to be a great nation. We just read, in, if we've been reading through Genesis, we read about the table of nations and we read about Nimrod, this great leader of the nations, how he, he created this empire. And then we, we read about all of the different groups of people that came out of that. But Yahweh says, no, Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. He says, I'm going to make your name great. The people at Babel in chapter 11, they were building a tower to heaven so that they could make a name for themselves. They had abandoned the worship of Yahweh and they were going to make their own name great. But what Yahweh says is, no, Abram, I'm going to make your name great. And you're going to be a blessing to all people. And for this, we go all the way back to the beginning. This is Adam and Eve's calling to be a blessing to the world. 
See, God hasn't changed his goal for humanity. He will have human representatives ruling over the world under him, and Abram has been chosen as the next candidate. Not because he's special, not because he's great, not because he's done anything amazing, just because God has chosen him. But these promises, they also frame the story moving forward. John Walton says, nearly everything the author chooses to discuss from here on connects back in some way to the provisions of the covenant. Generally, these connections come in two varieties. They either report an advance in the covenant promise and blessings, or they present obstacles to the promises and blessings. So as we read through these chapters in the coming months, always be thinking about how they relate to this blessing in chapter 12. It's easy to read the Bible and forget that it is a sophisticated piece of literature. Like it's just a bunch of random stories thrown together. But that's not what the author of Genesis is doing. He's making an incredibly important set of points with the parts of the story that he chooses to tell. And they all connect back to either how God is moving this plan of blessing forward or how honestly Abraham is screwing it up. So this text, this, this is chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, is like this, this pivot point looking back into the prehistory and moving forward into the rest of the book. But it's also, it's also a really beautiful example of revelation. It's, it's, been a, it's a big deal at this section of the text that God is speaking to a human being. It's been a long time since that happened as far as we can tell. God spoke to Noah, and that may have been hundreds, thousands of years before Abram. It's hard to tell. But it seems like the world has kind of forgotten about God. All of these people, at least in Ur, seem to be worshiping the moon. Because God hasn't been super vocal. John Walton, in his, uh, his commentary on, on this text, tells a story, a hypothetical story about some ancient worshipers and, and, how, and, and how two men come to the temple of Shamash, uh, the god of, of one of these towns, and, and, and they, they're there to worship, and, and one of them is there to give a thanksgiving offering because his crops are bountiful, and his uh, family is healthy, and he has many children, and his wealth is increasing, and he offers a thanksgiving offering to the God. But his friend, who is also there to worship, is there to see if he can figure out how he can offer something to appease the wrath of that God, because his crops are failing, and his family is ill, and his wealth is dwindling, and they have this discussion about their circumstances and how they don't really know what to do. They just know that this God has power over them and they're trying to manipulate him in some way to make him do kindness to them. There's this Assyrian poem that modern scholars have titled A Prayer to Every God, but it's, it's thousands of years old. And it says, to the God I know or do not know, the goddess I know or do not know. Although I am constantly looking for help, no one takes me by the hand. When I weep, they do not come to my side. I utter laments and no one hears me. I'm troubled. I'm overwhelmed. I cannot see. 
Man is dumb. He knows nothing. Mankind, everyone that exists, what does he know? Whether he is committing sin or doing good, he does not even know. And I love the honesty of that from this person who lived thousands of years ago in a, in a situation where there is something going on in the world that's bigger than me, but I don't really know what it is, and I can't really figure out how to work out my way in it. And I think this is really common. Many, many people have this just sense of loneliness in the world, right? Like, like there's, there's got to be something more, but what is it? How do, how, what is the meaning of life? Why do I exist? What's the purpose of what we're doing? And, and maybe, you know, you're not, you're not a follower of Jesus, and life feels that way to you. That there's no way, there's really no way to know. I was, I was talking to Jackson a couple, or last week about, um, about this. And, and we were just talking about people that are just convinced that their life is purposeless and meaningless. And you just got to make do with what you can and figure it out as best you can. Because no one's going to tell you the answer. No one's going to give you a path forward. And you're just kind of, wandering in the dark, hoping that it all works out. But what we see here in Genesis 12 is a God that makes himself known. We serve a God that has made himself known. The idea of revelation is hugely important in the Bible. It's, it's so important that we named our church after it, right? Like we believe that God reveals himself to people. And this whole book is the story of him taking the first step at every turn to reach out and begin a relationship with human beings. Over and over and over and over again, God is the party that initiates relationship. Abram would have no idea who Yahweh was if God didn't show up and speak. This section is, is often called the Abrahamic covenant. It's a, it's a set of promises that God makes with Abraham in this unique way. John Walton says, the covenant is God's revelatory program. People cannot enter into a relationship without, with a God they do not know. And so many of us, this is where we find ourselves. Like we, we long for something greater. We long for something better. We have this deep need in our souls. And, and we, we, we see it every day in how we, we pursue money and we pursue sex and we pursue fame and we pursue glory and, and work and, and leisure and whatever it is that we do to say, I need to get this thing filled because there's something out there that I need, but I don't know what it is. And I'm just going to keep trying these things until something works. But one of the amazing beauties of the gospel is that we have a God that steps out of his hidden place and speaks to us, taps us on the shoulder, reveals himself to us. And these promises that God makes to Abraham or to Abram, there are, I'm going to keep doing that until God changes his name. <laughs> these, these promises that God makes to Abram, are, are, they're windows into God's character. They tell us something about him. 
It says that, that God cares about individual people, right? He, he's not interested in this case in this mass of people. He's interested in this one person. He knows Abraham's name. It says that he can do amazing things. He promises all these things to Abram that, that we are going to assume that he can deliver on. He, he promises to protect Abram. But he also noticed he wants Abram to use what he's been given to bless others. And God's revelation of himself in this passage kicks off the story of the Jewish people. And this is a people specially created by God to reveal God's character to the nations. Isaiah 60 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. For look, darkness will cover the earth, and total darkness the peoples. But the Lord will shine over you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to your shining brightness. This is speaking of the nation of Israel and how They are specifically made not to live for their own sake, but to live as a light to the rest of the world, to point to the fact that Yahweh is God and to show people his goodness. This nation that will come from Abram produces a written record of what their God is like and how he loved them. And this is going to last for centuries. You ever think about this, that this, this book that is filled with these ancient stories is the most popular book that's ever been written. More copies have been printed than any other book. Billions of people order their lives around the teachings of this book. But it's not like it's the only old piece of literature out there. I just read you an Assyrian poem that's at least as old as Genesis. There's all this ancient literature that is just fine, I guess, But the Bible has been preserved, I would say, by God himself for thousands of years because it is the revelation of who God is. Paul says it in Romans 3. He says, so what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. As Christians, we have inherited the Jewish faith, the the faith of the Hebrew people. And these words and these pages are the words of God that were given to them to steward, not just for themselves, but for the rest of the world. And then beyond that, more than that, the the people that are produced from this family, the people of Israel, they're, they're called to produce someone called an anointed one or a Messiah. This particular human representative that will fully reveal the character of God to humanity. And it's through him, ultimately, that all the people of the earth will be blessed. We read in Matthew 1.1 that this is an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew connects Jesus directly to this man, Abraham. In Hebrews one of the, just one of my favorite passages, the beginning of Hebrews. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This section of Genesis is the beginning of that revelation, but it's not the end. Hebrews says that the pinnacle of that revelation is Jesus himself. That if you want to know the most clear picture of what God is, of who God is like, you can look at Jesus. This is, in many ways, chapter one of the story. The first 11 chapters of Genesis were the prologue in our, uh, in our, um, in our Sunday school curriculum. The, the phrase they use is, uh, this is, this is the beginning of God's rescue plan. That God is settling in with this plan that's going to last for thousands of years, crafting people and nations and kings and armies and prophets and seers so that his son will be born to redeem humanity. And this is one of the things that I think we take for granted, right? Like, like we just, it's just obvious that God wants to be known, right? Like that's, this is how we, how we live as Christians. Like, yeah, I've got a Bible and I pray and God wants me to pray and God wants me to read my Bible. And sometimes I don't really want to do that. And it's just kind of frustrating and hard. But, but the fact that the God of the universe who without his action you would know nothing about wants a relationship with you is amazing. It's something worth meditating on. And he says, here I am, come after me. Here I am in the face of Christ. Here I am in the scriptures. Here I am through the people that I have empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out my life in them. And I know sometimes we feel like God is, God is hidden, right? The, the sign on the church says God is not hidden, but like, are, are we sure about that? Sometimes it feels like maybe he is hidden. And I wonder though, if when we feel that way, that oftentimes we've, we've just stopped looking at where we know him to be. Like when things, are, when things are difficult, when God seems far away, look to Jesus. We have Jesus. Read the gospels. Meditate on who Jesus is and what you know to be true about his love for you. Search the scriptures. And I know sometimes when you're reading the Bible and it just feels like you can't even make the sentences work, but don't give up because this is, these are the very words of God. And then also like when God feels distant, sometimes we want to make ourselves distant. We want to disconnect from people. We don't want to, we don't want to be at the gathering. We don't want to be a part of a community group. We just don't, we don't want to talk about things. But the church is the place where we see the spirit of God moving and revealed. And he's always there in all those places. So God shows up to this idol-worshiping heathen and just promises him a bunch of stuff. And he says, I want you to go. So then in verse four, so Abraham went as the Lord told him 
and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife, Sarah, Sarai, and his nephew, Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to a site of Shechem at the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And he built an altar to the Lord there and he called on the name of the Lord. Then Abraham journeyed by stages to the Negev. So God says, I want you to go to this land and Abraham just, just does it. He just listens to God, right? There's no discussion. There's no follow-up questions. He takes everything he has, his wife that can't give him children, his nephew, and he leaves everything he knows to follow Yahweh to a place that he doesn't know. Hebrews 11 comments on this. He says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. That's really important to let it sink in. Because sometimes I think we think that Yahweh told him to move to Canaan. But that's not what happened. Yahweh told him to move to a land that he would show him. He said, get going and await further directions. I taught this at a youth group once. And um, I, won't, I won't do what I did there, but I'll tell you about it. Uh, I asked for a volunteer and a, bo- a boy raised his hand. And I said, I've got a king-size Snickers bar for you if you do what I say. And he goes, okay, what do you want me to do? I want you to go in a place, the room about this size, I want you to go to a place in the room that I will tell you. And he goes, well, well, what place? And I said, when you get there, I will let you know. And so he just started wandering around the room. And then I turned and I taught a lesson to the rest of the youth group for about 20 minutes. And this boy is just wandering around the room the whole time. And everybody's kind of like watching him and he's kind of sheepishly like doing this and looking back and maybe stopping and then he's going a little bit more and then he's kind of turning around. And, and I just, just totally ignored him. And finally, when we were done, I just said, okay, right there, that's the spot. And then I gave him a candy bar. <laughs> and then we debriefed it. You're like, how did it feel to be wandering around the room? Well, it felt kind of stupid. It felt like people were looking at me. I felt like, I felt kind of dumb. I felt like, what if, what if I misheard your instructions? Uh, what, if I, um, what, if I, what if I got to the place and you didn't notice and then I kept going and I missed it? Um, is, it, is the candy bar really worth it? <laughs> right? Like, like this, this idea of just like, just start going. And when you get there, I'll tell you, you got there. That's a big step of faith. It's not until Abram arrives in Canaan that God tells him this is the land. And even then we read, God says, this is the land that your offspring will get. You don't even get this land. I'm showing it to you, but it's your descendants that will get it. So we need to talk a little bit about faith. Faith is 
kind of a big deal, right? We call it the Christian faith because we use words in a lot of different ways. But faith is an important part of what we, what we are, who we are. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. Farther down in verse six, now without faith, it is impossible to please God since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith is important. So what is faith? And I think there's a couple of ways at least that we get this wrong. Sometimes we talk about faith and I think we really mean like luck or good fortune you know, I just have faith that the universe is smiling on me and it's all going to work out in the end. I was, um, uh, <laughs> I got to help my father-in-law replace his water heater yesterday and it's, um, it's in the basement, the crawl space basement. It's like a hole. It's an old house. And we had to get the old one out and the new one in through this hatch in the floor and, you know, we measured the hatch, and it was, it was 22 inches. We measured the water heater, and it was 21 and three-quarters inches. And, you know, I just, I have faith that this is going to fit through here. No, I don't. I, I'm just, I'm just, I hope I get lucky. <laughs> and we got lucky, and there, there's hot water again. But, but that's not really faith, and, but we talk about it that way sometimes. Faith in what? Well, it doesn't really matter. It's just this feeling that I have. And sometimes we do something that's a little different than that, which I, I think is more like mental projection, right? It's this, this switch in our minds that we have to conjure up to get the world to work out the way we want it to. Um, the greatest Peter Pan movie of all time, Hook, um, Robin Williams, there's this scene, if you haven't seen it, you should watch it. He's, he's a 40-year-old ex-Peter Pan who goes back to Neverland, um, and he's sitting at this banquet table with the Lost Boys, and they're having a great feast. And he's sitting there, but there's, there's no food at the table. And all the, all the lost boys who are still young because they never grow up um, are, are like chewing on like nothing. And they've got these spoons and these bowls and they're like, they're eating, but there's nothing there. And Robin Williams, Peter Pan's like, what are you guys doing? And they say, Peter, you have to believe. Peter, you have to believe. You got you to believe hard. Believe harder, Peter. And he believes and he believes and he believes and all of a sudden the table's filled with all this colorful food. And it's this amazing feast and all oh, Peter's believing again. And sometimes I think we talk about faith like that. If you want God to come through, if you have needs that seem unmeetable, you just, you just got to believe. You got to believe a little harder. If you believe hard enough, your faith will become actualized. And that's, that's just not how faith works either. Old Testament scholar Mike Heiser defines faith as believing loyalty. And he says, we believe and we need to be loyal to what we believe. We need to be loyal to the Savior in whom we believe. And by virtue of that, we're being loyal to the God whose salvation plan the whole thing is. Similarly, uh, Matthew Bates uses the term allegiance to describe faith. And he says, putting allegiance into practice in the church today will involve following Jesus' pattern of dying to the old self 
and of its self-serving allegiances and reorganizing a new life in accordance with Jesus' principles. These two phrases, believing loyalty and allegiance, have been really helpful for me to understand faith because faith then doesn't just become this intellectual thing or this like touchy-feely thing. It becomes this commitment to our king. It becomes this idea that, that we are going to be his, whatever that means, whatever that costs. An understanding of biblical faith is grounded in continually maintaining loyal allegiance to Yahweh and his son Jesus, not just in your mind or in your words, but in the way you live your life. Abram's faith is displayed in the fact that he forsakes his family gods and he obediently follows the command of Yahweh. And we can understand our faith the same way. Faith may start in the heart and the mind. It it typically does, but it is displayed in our actions. And when you begin to understand that faith is this act of loyalty and and allegiance, the scriptures start to sound a little bit different. For you are saved by grace through faith, and that is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works that no one can boast. Grace is a gift, right? Yahweh shows up to bless Abram, to give him a gift. Abram had to give Yahweh his allegiance, his loyalty, and obey his command. But that doesn't mean Abram earned the gift. He didn't pursue Yahweh. Yahweh pursued him. Abraham has nothing to boast in. He is a heathen idol worshiper, and God chooses by his grace to bestow blessing on him. But Abram still has to wander off into the wilderness in obedience, right? So the question for us with regards to faith is, are we loyal to Christ? Have we pledged our allegiance to Jesus? Everything that we have and everything we are, do I actually follow Jesus or am I just a church person? And it's easy to get uncomfortable thinking about this because we have, um, the Protestant Reformation has given us this, this radar about uh, works-based salvation. And I think that's important because we never want to be people that assume that we are doing good deeds in order to earn God's favor because that is not how the gospel works. But we do need to recognize that if we are Christians, we will be marked by our allegiance to Christ. We are not saved by what we do. We don't need to worry about doing enough or doing the wrong thing or or tripping up. We're going to see Abram trip up over and over and over and over again. But if we are really believing the gospel, if we are really accepting God's gracious gift of his son for our salvation, for our new life, his death and his resurrection on the cross, for our sins and for our eternal salvation, we're pledging to follow him. We're forsaking our other gods and we're listening to his word and walking in it. I'm going to probably be reminding us of this a lot through our study of Genesis, but these people that we're going to learn about, they're not really meant to be our role models. 
Uh, a lot of times we, we approach scripture that way. Like, you know, well, Abram's a good guy and I want to be a good guy, so I should be like Abram. You probably should do very few things the way Abram does them. <laughs> Most of the time, Abraham's example is pretty rough. Next week, in fact, we're going to look at the first of many blotches on Abram's character where he gives his wife away uh, to a foreign ruler for his own protection. Do not recommend. But at the same time, Abram and many of these other men and women are pillars of the faith. Hebrews 11 talks uh, about example after example of these people and how they have faith, but they are all super screwed up people. And I would guess that most of us would have a hard time competing with the craziness that we are going to see in this family as it unravels. But in the end, these people are loyal to Yahweh. They fail, they stumble, they screw up, but they don't leave. They don't abandon their king. They don't abandon their allegiance to God. Why does this matter? Because this story is ultimately about God. It's about his goodness, his faithfulness to himself and to the people that he covenants with. It's his reputation that's on the line if Abram's, the promises that are made to Abram don't come true. And so when we understand that Abram's story is actually God's story, we can begin to see someone greater than Abram that is actually worth looking up to. Think about this. Leave your home, leave your father's house, go to a foreign land, leave all your family riches behind. When you get there, make a sacrifice. I will make your name great and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Who am I talking about? Carl knows. <laughs> this, is, this is the story of Jesus, isn't it? Philippians 2 says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, in his father's house, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself. He gave it up by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had become a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. He went, to, he came to earth, he became a human being, and he himself became a sacrifice when he got there. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name. The name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, as we travel through this story over and over and over again, we are going to see glimpses in these real people, in this real family of someone greater who is coming, a king who will actually do what Abraham fails to do, who will actually do what Isaac fails to do, who will actually do what Jacob fails to do, what Joseph fails to do. 
our King Jesus. The God-man who, for the first time in human history, fulfills the role that Yahweh has for humans perfectly. Abram's story is just a little foretaste of Jesus' story. Where Abram is going to fail, Jesus is going to succeed. And this is why the gospel's call to put our allegiance, our faith in Jesus is good news. Because while we are definitely not up to the task, Jesus is. We can't make it, but Jesus already did. And our act of faith, our act of loyalty, is simply us holding on to Jesus' own faithfulness. Because Jesus has completed the work on our behalf. And when we look at Abraham, we see someone who is just minding their own business, living a life far from God, who God steps into, speaks to, reveals himself to, showers great blessings on, not because of anything that Abram's done, but because of grace. And says, hey, Abram, I want you to trust me. I want you to follow me. I want you to pledge your life to me. And Abram goes, okay, I will. And we're going to follow him as he takes two steps forward and one step back over and over and over again. But the real story is watching the faithfulness of God as he puts his word on the line and makes sure that Abraham becomes the person that he wants him to be. And I think that's the same story that God is writing in all of our lives, right? If you're a Christian here this morning, you have been saved from a life of rebellion and wickedness and um, lostness from God. And you've been given gift of salvation by grace. You've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit by grace. You've been given the gift of a community by grace. And, and God says, trust me, believe me, have faith in me, pledge your allegiance to me, follow me. And I will see it through to the end. All right, that's enough of that. Doesn't look like we have any questions. That's okay. We're gonna take communion. Um, you, you might have heard me say this before, but, but the communion meal in one sense is, is kind of a pledge of allegiance to Jesus. It's a covenant renewal ceremony. It's, it's intended to be a reminder of who we are as the people of God. We celebrate it every week. And in doing so, we take the bread and the cup, Jesus' body and his blood, the things that save us from our sins, the thing that, that make us a part of the family of God. And, and we express our renewed belief in that salvation and loyalty to our king who died and rose from the dead on our behalf. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And if that's who you are, if you're here and you are one of Jesus' people, 
If you have pledged your allegiance to Christ, then I would invite you to continue to do that, to reaffirm that this morning at the Lord's table. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you, if you wouldn't say that your allegiance belongs to Jesus, then I would just say, don't pretend that it does. Don't pretend that you are who you're not. But on the other hand, just decide to be loyal to Jesus. Make the decision to be his, because he's inviting you to be his. He's offering you blessing and life and forgiveness and joy. And he wants you to follow him. And today you can make that decision and then demonstrate that loyalty to Christ by taking communion with us this morning. And for those of us that are Christians, maybe, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, it's just a good reminder as we do this every week, whether, um, whether we talk about it directly or not, does my life reflect my allegiance to Christ? When I take this bread and this cup into my body representing its nourishment of me, its salvation of me, Christ's life in me, is that something that I'm actually walking out? Is that something that I'm actually loyal to? Or is it just something that I do on Sundays because there's nothing better to do? I hope that's not true. So I'm going to invite the, the band back up and, and you can come down as we sing and take the bread and the cup, Jesus' broken body and his shed blood and um, this reminder of his sacrifice on the cross that saves you and, and to whom you owe your life. Uh, take it back to your seat and eat it at your um, when you're ready. You can also sit or stand as we sing. You can pray on the, the prayer rugs up front. Um, let's just worship together. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.